beloved of God in Christ. And uh, you know that when the father is as pleased with his son, that he is as pleased with you in Christ as he is as pleased with his son. Do you know that? Do you tell yourself that? Do you remind yourself of these things? I want to encourage you to remind yourself of these kinds of wonderful truths of the gospel. And uh, I was just thinking about that for a moment as I was thinking about you waiting to have everyone seated. And um, it's really important that you remember your high position in Christ and, um, and the mercies of God that he's given us. You know, we were singing, blessings all mine, right? Blessings all mine. Thank you for your singing, by the way. That was just wonderful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we give you glory. We are the church of Jesus Christ, who is your Christ, who is our Lord, and who is our Savior, the one who died and who was raised on our behalf to pay for the fullness of our sins and to bring us into uh, the blessings that are all ours in him because of the work he's done. Thank you this morning that we're not here having to rely on ourselves, but merely on the mercy of Christ. Thank you for his shed blood again. Thank you that he gave his life up there so willingly on that cross in our place. Thank you that we gather now uh, by your spirit under the authority of your word and that you have given it to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would encourage us in it and correct us in it and call lost people who may be here this morning who do not know, yet know what it means to know Christ, to see Jesus and all of his love and compassion and all of his care and kindness for them and to turn to him and submit their lives to him with faith and to be saved. Father, would you help us by your spirit, fill us with your spirit for understanding, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see and know truths from your word that you would be speaking into our hearts. Thank you, Father, for hearing prayers such as these because Christ has died for us and you are a God who delights to give grace and mercy in our time of need. And as we hear from your word, we have great need. Meet that need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're going to finish Luke chapter 18, and uh, we should be finished with Luke in about two weeks, five chapters to go. Kidding. Tongue-in-cheek. Tongue-in-cheek. Actually, it's six chapters. I keep saying five, but it's a lie. You know, as I was wrestling with Luke 18, and, you know, um, Luke 18 is one of those passages where you have the healing of blind Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus is not mentioned, actually, in Luke's account, but this is an account that happens both, that's uh, accounted for both in Matthew and Mark and Luke, um, but a little bit different with some little different points of emphasis within both, and, um, 
you know, sometimes you come across a passage like this and, um, you know, it doesn't really land much with you because you've read it like a thousand times. I mean, this is one of those stories that kids think about, you know, they think about Jesus healing a blind man and, um, and they remember that story forever. And so then, you know, sometimes here we are 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road in Christ and blind Bartimaeus is, it's not a passage that's hard to figure out what's going on. I mean, it's one of those pretty clear, pretty simple, you know, not a lot of real difficulties here um, to understand the meaning of the text before us. And, and so sometimes, you know, you, you, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but I, I definitely noticed this where you kind of come across a passage like that and it's kind of like, what am I really supposed to get out of this that is supposed to stir and move my heart? Um, because there's this tremendous danger with Scripture, and especially passages like this one, and, and Lord willing, next week is Zacchaeus, and there's this tremendous danger of familiarity. And familiarity is such a danger um, to our hearts that uh, kind of deadens us to beautiful instruction and wonderful, wonderful truth that God's goodness has given us in Scripture, even in passages like this. And, um, and so uh, I, I hope this morning that we can get beyond a level of familiarity, though we will cover the story again, um, that we will get beyond a level of familiarity and consider maybe in some fresh ways or maybe new ways, but maybe just reminding ways, important ways of reminder of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ and of our great need for it. Now, I kind of want to, I'm just, I'm not going to actually read the passage this time. We're going to work into it, but I want to remind us kind of the big picture context here is all the way back to Luke 16. We've seen this again and again and again. I mean, it's kind of like the message could have been the same for about the last two months, which is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and help me repent of living a Christian life of self-commendation rather than self-condemnation. And back to Luke 16, right? Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He said to them, Luke 16, 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then passage after passage, it seems like it keeps coming back to the importance of, we have... Um, the Pharisee and the tax collector in chapter 18, right? And uh, the, the man who goes away justified is the man who beats his breast, you know, says, have mercy on me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then you come to this blind, uh, you go to the rich young ruler, for instance, and um, the rich young ruler is full of himself, right? There's no have mercy on me, a sinner, the rich young ruler, um, in contrast to Jesus, who is God, who is good, you know, and uh, has no need of mercy. He's kept the commandments in his mind, right? You know, this, this um, thinking that the gospel is something that we are supposed to commend ourselves and thereby attain. And what I keep reminding us is that Christianity is not about self-commendation, it's about self-condemnation. It's about the kind of self-condemnation 
that understands that its only hope is Christ and Christ alone and begs for mercy and begs for mercy loudly. And so that's the big context. Now, um, in, in, it's important that we kind of handle a, a couple things. First is the immediate context here in Luke is different than where Matthew and Mark place it on purpose. It's not that there's some difference in the historical reality of what happened. It's just that Luke wants to emphasize something that's similar to Matthew and Mark, but a bit different. And so in Matthew and Mark, this passage of Scripture is closely, um, is, has the uh, one account where the mother of the sons of Zebedee, you know, come to Jesus and they say, hey, you know, can they sit on your right hand and then at your left in your kingdom, right? Because fleshly thinking, um, thinking that doesn't understand what Christ has come to do, that he must suffer, thinks Jesus is getting ready to establish his kingdom and exalt all the nation of Israel right now, when in fact he's coming to suffer and judge the nation of Israel. I mean, how upside down can we get sometimes uh, between good and evil and the reality of our place before God? And so that's the context in those places. And so the point there um, is for the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, named in Mark, but not named here in Luke, just I think probably Luke wanted to just emphasize Jesus more, but is to say, no, greatness isn't greatness and self-commendation and self-exaltation is not the Christian life. The Christian life is submitting to Jesus and, and calling on Him for mercy. And so here, it's not this passage about the blind beggar isn't actually preceded by that ask to be sitting at the right hand and at the left. It's actually preceded by what we studied last week, Jesus' passion prediction, His final passion prediction. And we are really close. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. That's what He said actually in verse 31. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. So He's headed towards Jerusalem. We're in the last week here, historically, of Jesus' passion and he's going there to suffer. And then you see this verse, after predicting his passion for the third time, the disciples having walked with him for three years at this point, this verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. And it's really just this <laughs> remarkable condemnation of their blindness of the purpose of Jesus because they still think that Jesus is coming to exalt them and establish the fullness of His kingdom. And so what you end up finding here is the disciples, even though they've been walking closely with Jesus, have a blindness of heart about the Christ. Now, it will click with them as time continues, but they have a blindness about the Christ. And in contrast, you have this outcast, blind beggar, we're going to see sitting on the side of the road who's physically blind. But God's opened his heart so that the eyes of his heart are enlightened to know who the Christ is. And he begs for mercy. And so, let's begin. Verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, um, I do want to deal with this quickly. If you read Matthew and Luke's account, um, one account has, uh, it's, it's escaping me. 
Oh, Matthew's account has two men that are blind and are healed, okay? Luke focuses on one of them. So don't, you know, like one of the dangers when you kind of come to these places in the Gospels where there's a little bit of difference in the account, the point isn't that, you know, one of them told something that's not true. The point is they told something different about the circumstance on purpose in order to communicate particular truth. Probably Luke, in this case, just focusing on um, the more significant particular situation. The other thing that's important here that um, we understand is that there's a little bit of a difficulty here in verse 35 that's not as easily resolvable as nothing. It doesn't shake my faith in any, in any way, but I just want you to at least be aware of these kinds of things. Verse 35, when it says, as he drew near to Jericho, um, in Matthew's account, it's as they're leaving Jericho, and in Luke, it's as he's, as he's kind of entering Jericho, it seems, or drawing near to Jericho. And in Mark's account, it's when he's leaving Jericho. So what's going on with that? Well, I don't know entirely, but there's, you know, commentators have given many kinds of options and ways this could have mattered. Is it just that as he drew near to Jericho, he's in the area of Jericho, and this man is crying out, and kind of in our assumption, we just think, well, Jesus is walking into Jericho, there's a guy crying out, and right then all of this transpires, or maybe this guy was crying out for a period of time, so that it actually could be said as he was near the area of Jericho, but also as he was preparing to leave Jericho, but this man was crying out for a period of time while Jesus was right there in that area, and then he healed him. You know, commentators will differ on that issue, but, you know, don't let silly things like that, you know, your, your professors at IU will pick up on little bitty things like that, and they'll go, see, the Bible's not true. And um, it's just silly. It's just silly. Like, there's no explanation for some variation in a couple words. No, what your professors never understand is that um, gospel writers communicate on purpose, and they communicate what they want to communicate on purpose about a particular instance. And uh, it actually adds validity to the truth of Jesus and to his life that there actually is some variance in the telling of the story. Not that there's variance where there's lies and truth mixed in, but variance where there's a different point of emphasis. Luke wants us to know some things that maybe Mark wants us to know some different things. And, and here, you know, like I said, in Mark and in Matthew, the emphasis is on, no, self-exaltation isn't the way, isn't the way of Christ. What the way of Christ is, is not to pursue the sitting on the right hand and the left hand because the kingdom's coming now. It's to follow Christ into His suffering. And so here, that's what um, is being emphasized is not so much the, the, the pride directly of the disciples, though that's kind of undergirding this, but their blindness. Their blindness. And how true it is of us that even following Christ for many years, that we have places of great blindness. Great blindness. Things that we have yet to see. Things that we will, when we see them, be amazed that we did not see them sooner in our life. Things that are far from Christ or a misunderstanding of Christ or His truth that um, when it kind of all clicks, we'll be like, wow, all this time, that was so obvious may even be obvious to others, right? Because that's kind of, it's kind of the way this works. You can't see your blindness. <laughs> you know? Others can. Others can. Right? You can see my blindness. 
you can see my blindness. So the disciples are blind, but the blind man sees. And I don't want us to be blind. I want us to see. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. So Jesus in the, in the caravan of disciples and followers who are with him are approaching. He, he hears the, the noise and the commotion. And the blind man is told in verse 37, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is, is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is really fascinating because it stands in complete contrast to the disciples. You know, it stands in complete contrast to the disciples. Where's the disciples' cry for Jesus to have mercy on them? No. No, no, the very thing that should be so clear to them, they are blind to. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and He cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on Me. Now, what happens in that next moment is just really interesting because it's not just the disciples. There's a whole other group of Jews around. I don't know if this is Jesus' caravan or just others who are kind of waiting in Jericho and Jesus is coming through. Here's what they do. And those who were in front, you know, it's like he's, he's at the back of the crowd. Wherever the crowd is gathered here, he's at the back of the crowd. You know, he's the guy who apparently shouldn't have access to Jesus. Those who were in the front rebuked him. Here's what they did when they rebuked him. They, they were telling him to be silent. Be silent. You know, was it? And what was going through their mind when they're telling this blind man in the back who's crying out for mercy from Jesus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Like, what was going through their mind that they wanted Him to be silent? Was it just kind of this embarrassment that, you know, well, there's the, is that guy back there? We just don't want him to kind of disturb things. You know? It's just, you know, he's that guy. What, what in the world would, would keep them in, in this mindset of shut up? Was, it, was he just distracting the moment? Uh, was, was he... He was obviously something different um, than what they thought Jesus should be interested in. Did they want their moment? Did they think they were the ones who could now have the moment where they could ask who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and maybe could I be on your right hand or on your left, Jesus? Quiet! And what I love about this blind man is his faith. He has faith. And when, it's, when, it, when he says... Jesus of Nazareth, when it says Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, Son of David. The blind man knew that Jesus was the Messiah in the line of David. It's really important. If you understand the big storyline of your Bible, the covenant that God made with David was that he would be, his, a son of his would be on a throne who would reign forever, and that's Jesus who is now here, and the blind man recognizes. This is the Messiah, the Christ, in the line of David. He is the king who will reign on the throne of David forever. This blind man recognizes that. 
He's not actually asking for a throne himself. He's recognizing that Jesus is the king and Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. And then he sees himself exactly for what he is, even though the rest of the crowd passing by, the multitudes and the many who, uh, and, and who are missing the narrow gate, who are missing the narrow gate, he then increases his volume in faith. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And these are great words. If you ever wonder if Jesus has time for you, or if you ever wonder whether um, Jesus has concern for you, or that amidst all the things that Jesus might be concerned about in the world that He reigns over. There's these really great words in verse 40. Do you see what it says? Look down at your Bible. It says, and Jesus stopped. And Jesus stopped. I love those words. And Jesus stops. Stopped. You know what's happening here? This is really remarkable. It's a wonderful display of the compassion of Jesus Christ. For those who are in the back row and on the side of the road and who others have no account for and think Jesus must have no place for. And Jesus stopped. Because in Luke's Gospel, constantly those who are weak and marginalized and oppressed and blind, Jesus sets them free and gives them sight and heals them, and saves them. And Jesus stopped. And in the, in the flow of this, it's not that Jesus... Jesus like we're, at, we're at like a last couple of really important interactions where um, people are converted. Next week, Zacchaeus, and right now, blind Bartimaeus, right in front of us. But Jesus is literally headed to Jerusalem to die. He's headed there to suffer, and He's headed there to die. Because he knows he's going to be killed. He knows he's going to be rejected by men. He knows he's going to be flogged and mocked and spit upon, just like the passage says right previous to this. He's headed to Jerusalem to die for the sins of his people and for the penalty of the sins of his people. That's what, I mean, we're in the last week before he dies, and then there's these beautiful words, and Jesus stopped. And I just want you to, I just want you to understand something. That if you're calling on Jesus for mercy out of a place of helplessness and hopelessness, if you're calling on Jesus for mercy from a place of helplessness and hopelessness, Jesus will stop and hear your cry. He is merciful. And so when this blind man says, pity me, Jesus, he understands. He can't see and it's a wretched place to be. Have you, ever, have you ever seen any of those videos of people who are colorblind? And they get those, now they have those glasses that um, they put on that actually let them see color for the first time. And just how moved they are. They're, they're just like, this is what you can see? You know, and they're just in awe of the fact that they can see color. Well, this blind man's in a far more wretched place than that. He can't just not see color, he can't see and he understands this wretched place that he's in and that he's living in. I don't know what it would be like to be blind, but it just sounds awful. 
And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. John 6.37, all who come to me, I will not cast out. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, put me on a throne at your right hand. Make me the greatest in your kingdom. Just said, Lord, let me recover my sight. I just want to be able to see. I just want to be able to see. And our Lord's compassion never turning away from cries for mercy, arising from a place of helplessness and hopelessness, recognizing Jesus is king forever. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. Glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That'd be amazing if you were sitting there and, 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 and you're the front of the crowd. And there's a guy who you think is obnoxious in the back, being way too loud, disturbing the peace. Jesus probably doesn't have time for you. You know, Jesus is a busy man. He's, you know, don't you know, he's wandering all over Israel and healing people and helping this person and that person and that person. There's a whole crowd of people. Maybe there were people in front who wanted something from Jesus, but, but what this guy understood that they didn't was that he was helpless and hopeless. He could not solve the problem of his blindness himself. And so all he does is say, Lord Jesus, pity me. And Jesus stops and he commands them to be brought to him. So, you know, he has to kind of find his way through the crowd of people you know, and, and, and to get to Jesus, and then he heals him, and all of a sudden, this well-known well situation, probably with Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, Mark says, um, this well-known situation, this man starts seeing, and the whole crowd, the whole crowd is around, and wait a second, Jesus has, has time for people like that? Jesus is actually interested in people like that who, you know, aren't awesome? And immediately he recovered his sight. I mean, his eyes open. And, and the reaction, the reaction to n not just being colorblind and seeing color, but to being completely blind and being able to see. I mean, for the first time, this man looked at people's faces and saw them. He didn't just know names. He knew names with faces all of a sudden. He all of a sudden actually beheld the face of Jesus whom he could not see, but whom he knew he needed mercy from. And there's more than just him being healed of blindness. This is a story of conversion. This is a person who's coming to know Christ, who's being saved. And the indication is that in the text is not just, it's not just that he receives sight, it's that he was saved from his sins because he's, he, he immediately follows Jesus. 
and glorifies God, that this is a work of God done in his heart and life and not just in his eyes. Do you understand that if you're a Christian, this is a work of God that's been done in your heart and life? And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God because what else could you do when your heart, the eyes of your heart have been enlightened to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He is the one who reigns on a throne over all creation. He is the one who must give me mercy if I would be able to be saved. You know, and in the bigger context of this passage, it's really important that we think about these some, some important realities that even as a Christian, even as a Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, it's entirely possible to remain blind of heart in countless ways, even though your eyes can see. Because even as a Christian, your hopes turn away from hoping in Christ alone to hoping in life getting fixed in some way. You know, my spouse being different, me being different. Some particular thing, you know, all of my hope is on if I overcome this particular sin before Jesus comes back. And all of our hopes and trusts are to be on Christ alone. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And leave, leave church anything that you would want to add to Christ out. My good and faithful Son. Hope only in Christ. Trust only in Christ. Call, uh, uh, ask for mercy from Christ. Only He can save you. And He won't just fix... He, Jesus isn't just about fixing your life. Even though He does heal the blind man, He extends mercy and salvation from the penalty of your sin, from God's very judgment over your sin. And if you remember the context that Jesus is constantly rebuking the Pharisees and pointing out that we are saved by the mercy of God in the Messiah and not saved by justifying ourselves and self-commendation, then one of the things that you have to remember, J.C. Ryle said it this way, said, beware of self-righteousness in every possible shape and form. Some people get as much harm from their virtues as they do from their sins. Some people get as much harm from their virtues as others do from their sins. Why would that be? Well, the reason that that would be is because you would start to have pride that your virtues aren't born entirely of the grace of God and the power of God, but born of your own effort and your own discipline and your own work, and you will open them and trust in them. And your virtue will do you positive harm. Liberals think their standard of kindness and their committed causes will merit the saving power of God. The rich think that their success and their creation of jobs for other families and the responsibility they've carried will merit the saving power of God. The blue-collar worker thinks living a hard-working, simple life will merit the saving power 
of God. The poor think taking care of their family at all costs will merit the saving power of God. The teacher thinks that the burdens they carry trying to educate all the children will merit the saving power of God. The artist thinks their unique giftedness will merit the saving power of God. The pagan thinks all of their idolatrous practices to appease the gods will actually merit the saving power of the gods. The musician thinks that because many people love him or her that he or she will merit the saving power of God. The mother sets her hope on her service in raising her children and taking care of her home, thinking it will merit the saving power of God. The father sets his hope before God in his efforts to provide a home for his family and his work through his work. Homeschool parents think that the one thing that matters by which they cast all their hope is that they're keeping their children away from the evil in the public school. That's the only thing that matters. They think this will merit the saving power of God, if not for them, for their children. Classical schools think Latin will commend them to God. You understand, there's an endless number of ways in which our self-righteousness is at work that we place our hope and trust in it as if this is actually going to merit us the saving power of God. These are the things by which we think we are the greatest and we deserve to sit on the right hand and on the left. And though we might not say that because we're, well, we're, we're far too clean and we understand that people would understand that we're arrogant if we said things like that. So we just live with them in our heart. But the endless list of things that we could throw on the table of humanity that thinks it will merit the saving power of God. I could go on forever and it is blind, it is blind, it is blind, it is spiritually blind, it is blind, though you can see if that's where you're at this morning, hoping in yourself and hoping in your best effort and your work or something that's good about you that's not as bad about somebody else and you think this is what's going to merit the Savior, I have good news. Jesus says you're a sinner. And what Jesus does is not save righteous people. He saves sinners. Jesus is a physician who actually came to heal sick people. And the good news is that He actually saves sinners and heals sick people. And He finds what's lost. He doesn't put any effort into finding what already thinks it's found. And what you must do is call upon the mercy of Christ. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to just consider one other side of this coin just for a second and we'll finish. What about the person who sinned too much to ever have any hope you know, that Jesus would say to them, bring him or her to me. What about, what about the person who, who within themselves, they feel like they're too far gone? They have sinned too much, you know? And, and think specifically about people. You probably have heard people say this if you haven't said it yourself. Think about an addict. And the experience of an addict who has burnt every relational bridge in their family, in their friendships, and everywhere else in order to feed the addiction. To get more of the substance, to get high one more time to escape all of life. And, 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 and in the tangled enslavement of that reality, even think God is 
in the right for sending them to hell. They even actually might even say, God will be in the right for sending me to hell. There is no hope for me. Or think about the prodigal who has a, maybe some kind of sense of shame about his or her life that has dishonored his or her family and created endless carnage and rebellion against God. Or the sexually perverse who feel deeply that what they have done is wickedness and know they have no power within themselves to fix it. And that there is no hope for them in eternity. When they stand before God, there will be no hope for them. And no, they have no power to fix it. What about that person? Well, first, for that person, you must remember this. I would say this is just a different manifestation of the same problem, trusting in yourself and in your own works. If you recognize that you don't have the works, but what you really want is the ability to have effort to fix yourself to make you right with God. You can't skip over that. It's actually a manifestation of the same problem. If only I could get free myself from this addiction. So this doesn't only apply to the proud and kind of who we think of as the proud, confident, chest out, arrogant. It also applies to the despairing heart, the pride of the despairing heart. Because if I could only get myself free from this addiction, then I would have the saving power of God. I can't, so I'm hopeless, but if I could, then I would have it. Do you see? That's still a trust in self. You justify yourselves before men and before God. If only I could go back and not make the same choices the prodigal might say. You know, if I could do this thing all over again, then I would have the saving power of God. No, you wouldn't. If only I didn't desire these awful things the sexually perverse says, then I would have the saving power of God. No, you wouldn't. The saving power of God comes to the sinner who knows their sin, who doesn't try to fix it themselves to make themselves right with God, but who calls upon Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy on me. You're the one who, just as you fix the blind man's eyes, are going to have to heal this heart. And I also would say to those in that situation that seem too far gone, you know, the person who seems too far gone often thinks that what they do oftentimes in their flesh is they think that I call on Jesus and the calling on Jesus is what's going to get me out of the mess I'm in. You understand that's not Christian. That's not going to save the addicts stuck in their enslavement. That's worldly sorrow. That's not repentance. The addict and the prodigal and the sexually perverse and any one of you or me or anyone else, the only way that we receive the saving power of God is by calling upon Jesus for mercy right in the middle of the sins that we know are so wicked and wretched that they would condemn us and God would cast us off into His judgment forever if He did not actually say, bring Him to me. Bring them to me. I don't want to come from the back row. Okay with being in the back row. Jesus says, bring them to me. 
It's not about whether you have done too much or too little, too much that's right or too little that's right or too much that's wrong. The heart of the good news of Jesus is that you're recognizing that you are helpless and hopeless without Jesus, just as blind Bartimaeus. And you recognize Jesus Christ as the king, and he holds all judgment over your eternity. He holds all judgment over your eternity. But if you would call upon him for mercy from your sins and your rebellion and living life your way instead of his way, he will not cast you out. If you know that he's the only one who can save you, he will not cast you out. He will say, bring him to me. Let me not just deal with his eyes. Let me deal with his soul. And let me give him, let me give him eyes, an enlightened heart to see my salvation and life the way I made it. He would rescue you from your sins. All who come to me, I will not cast out. And I want to encourage you, if you don't know Christ, to come to him and beg like the beggar, the blind beggar. And you know, if you have parents and friends and family who you know are going to be the front of the crowd who are going to think maybe you're a little nuts and think maybe you need to stay in the back of the crowd and just be quiet about this whole Christian thing and you know you don't really need to keep going to church and checking out church and this Christian stuff and there's people who would tell you not to do that you don't listen to them you say son of David have mercy on me and you cry out all the more until you are saved until you know Christ until you know your sins are forgiven, until you know you have the promise of eternal life, until you know all the blessings that God gives to His children are yours. I'm going to close by reading this psalm. Psalm 116. Verses 1 through 9. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living, because you have heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, and you have answered me. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Jesus, thank you for humbling us and correcting us and 
rebuking us for hoping in ourselves and rather than hoping in Christ. May we be a church that doesn't take pride in our virtues and neither despairs in our sins, but hopes in Christ alone. And doesn't just come to Christ and say, have mercy on me at the moment of salvation, but as a church constantly begs you, Lord Jesus, Son of David, you reign on your throne. Be merciful to us. We bear many guilts even now. In Jesus, we glorify you as you glorified your Father. We thank you for your work on our behalf. We know that apart from you and the work that glorifies your own name, we have nothing. We would be condemned forever. Open our eyes and reveal places of blindness that still exist in our hearts. Self-righteousness and rigidity in places where love has tenderness and flexibility and kindness and condescension and grace and mercy. That we may reflect the Jesus who stopped for the one in the back of the crowd. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.